Well, last week we started with the 9th and 10th commandment. We talked about how that really was a look at the sin of the heart. Well, tonight as we move forward to the 8th commandment, we're really talking about sin of the tongue. In a lot of ways, this is the toughest one to look at because it's so easy to break, right? And so let's, let's start our, our evening by looking at the 8th commandment. What is the 8th commandment? What does this mean? So as you look at that, anything strike you about the explanation that Luther gives to the Eighth Commandment? You shall not give bare false testimony against your neighbor. What is it that God forbids in this commandment? Especially the way that Luther interprets it for us. Okay, not lie. That's the top one, right? Right off the bat. We shouldn't lie. Betray. Betray, okay. And that includes betray of confidence, right? What else? Gossip, right? What is gossip? Okay, we, so we normally think of the lies, spreading rumors. Is it gossip if it's the truth? Yes. It's anything that puts someone in a bad light. Anything that you say that doesn't need to be said, that, that um, hurts the person's reputation or how people might view them. And, and so and you, you begin to understand how difficult this commandment is to keep, Right? Whenever you have two people together, what do they do? They talk. And who do they talk about? The one that's not there, right? And it's so easy to, to, to do that, right? This is what makes this commandment so difficult for us to keep. To, to me, this is one of my favorite explanations that Luther gives to the commandments. Uh, when we get to the second half. Because what does Luther tell us to do? And the beauty of Luther with the Ten Commandments, it's not only does he understand that the commandments speak about what we should not do, but it also he gives us an understanding of what, under each of these commandments, what we should do. And so what does God command us to do under this commandment? Speak well. Yes, to speak well of our neighbor. What else? Defend them. Yep, if somebody's bullying or, or speaking bad, we, we speak up on their behalf, right? And, and to me, the, the, this is my, maybe my favorite phrase of Luther, explain everything in the kindest way. Or I think the way I learned it was to put the best construction on, on everything. And it really, is, as a kid when I was memorizing this, it just drove home that this is what God wants me to do when we have a conversation, to, to give the person the benefit of the doubt. To not assume the worst. Because isn't that what our human nature wants to do? To, to assume the very worst? And, and so, so this is the commandment that we're going to focus in on tonight. The, the commandment of the tongue. And as we go through this, what we're going to do, and this is kind of the pattern that we'll have throughout this, this series, is we're going to examine what this commandment means in its fullness from the scriptures. But then we're going to see how does this commandment play a role in Jesus' passion? So tonight we're going to spend the first half of our time 
about uh, um, a couple of places from Paul that talk about how we are to use the tongue. Well, actually a psalm and a passage from Paul. And then the second half, we're going to look at, a time, look at how the, this commandment was broken in putting Jesus to the cross. And so, so that's our direction as we begin this evening. As I planned the looking at the commandments, uh, again, in the way that, that Luther brings out, I wanted to emphasize the passages that speak about how we are to keep the commandment, not so much how to break it. I think we don't need to learn that anymore. I think that comes by pretty honestly. I think it's good for us to be reminded of, of what we are called to do. And, and so that's why I chose the two passages that I did. The first one is from Psalm 15, verses 1 to 5. O Lord, who will shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, and does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And so what question is being raised by the psalmist in verse 1? Who's worthy? Yeah. Worthy for what? Yes, that's exactly right. He's, he's asking the question. Who's going to sojourn in my tent? Who's going to sojourn on his hill? Who is worthy to come into the presence of God? And, and I found the answer is rather interesting. And in one way, it's not surprising. What's the answer? Can you look at verse 2. Okay, so he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Someone who is blameless, someone who does right, someone who follows the law of God, who, who is holy, right? That's who can come into the presence of God. And this is why we need to be forgiven, to come into the presence of God. That someone unholy, someone who is, blame, uh, is blameful, cannot be in the presence of God. But it's interesting that he talks about walking and doing what is right. What's the third part? Speaks the truth. No, notice how closely God, or, or what does he demonstrate by this answer? It's the question I put down here. Why, why does he include that part? Okay, it's truth, he's not lying, right? Okay, why is it so? Because my, my point in, in highlighting that verse is God is highlighting what is truly important to him, right? To live out your life, to walk blamelessly. But, but notice one of the major things that he is on his heart and is on his mind is one who speaks the truth. Why would that be so important to our God? Think about the characteristic of God. Characteristics. He is truth, right? And, and again, when we think about the second person of the Trinity, is the Word of God, right? In the flesh. And so if, if God is truth... The second person is, is the living embodiment of that truth in the Word. Would it not make sense that one of the things close to his heart are those who speak the truth? That, that this is important in his eyes? That, that we, we speak the Word as intended, as God has wanted? 
that, that, we, that um, part of walking blamelessly is, 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 and walking what is right is, is actually speaking the truth because God himself is truth. And, and notice and when we get down to verse 4, in whose eyes the vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord, that what does it mean to, the, that the vile person is despised? <laughs> Bad person is hated? Okay, hated is a turned away from, Right? that the despised to put away from, from yourself. And so one who does not speak the truth is, is put away, but again, the one who fears the Lord is, is honored. And, and so in, in the connection here for us tonight is how do you recognize the, the one who is uh, the vile person and who's the one who fears the Lord? It's, it's, it's the word of mouth, right? The only way we know someone is a Christian is by their confession, right? And then the, the works that follow with it, but, but we know those who are part of the church are those who confess being part of the church. Those who despise the Lord are ones who make it clear by their, by their language and their words that they despise the Lord. And, and so he recognizes and stays away from those who would turn him away, and he focuses on those who, um, who are true to the word, that, that encourage him, and what does it mean who swears to his own heart and does not change, to his own hurt, excuse me, and does not change? Why is there times in which you don't want to exactly tell the truth? Okay, it hurt your image, right? And you're afraid of what other people might think of you, right? And so notice what he's saying here is that he'll speak the truth even when it's not to his advantage. And isn't this part of the problem when it comes to, to gossiping, right? When people are talking, um, even if we don't agree with it, what, what do we want to do? We just want to remain silent. But what's the problem with remaining silent? You means you agree with it, right? If, if, if you're sitting, someone's saying something and you remain silent, what's the person speaking thinking? Oh, they're agreeing with me, right? Are you not by that way then encouraging them even in the gossip? You are, whether you want to be or not, or think you are or not, are participating in it. That's why Luther says in the explanation that we defend the, uh, one another, that, that we speak well of them. It's not the, the idea of staying away from gossip isn't just staying silent. The way to combat gossip is to speak up, especially for those who cannot defend themselves, those who are not there, or those whose image is, is being tarnished. And isn't that the problem with the gossip, right? Because Kathy brought up the idea that sometimes when you hear it, once they're done, it's like, I didn't even want to know that. Because then it affects, and then she says, now when she sees the person, that's what comes to mind. It, it, it can affect in your own mind the way that you think about them. And isn't this at the heart of it, the reputation? Someone else had a hand up over here? And, and, and so... Um, that, that, that really is, is, is a major part of this, that, that it's really about the reputation, because the reputation cannot be restored. And then, then notice in verse 5, what's also connected with speaking the truth? Money, right? Isn't it interesting? Because again, lots of people make lots of money for saying things that are not necessarily true, or could be classified as gossip, right? Be because it, it fills up the airwaves or the internet or whatever, 
right? And, and, and it appeals to people that, they, that says the things that people want to hear. And, and so again, one of the dangers of breaking this commandment is the doing it for our own benefit. One of the reasons people gossip or put people in a bad light is, why? Because it makes them look better, right? And sometimes it makes you feel better. At least I'm not like them. And so, so one of the problems with, with breaking this commandment is doing damage to others for our own benefit, whether it's financial or whether it's just for our own personal feelings or so that we look better amongst other people. I'd rather them think badly over, of them than think badly of me. And, and so this is, the, this is the problem that we have. This is why we need to, to speak honestly. And that honesty is, and, and um, again, the honesty is found throughout our life. Right? It's not only in our actions, but also in our words. Last week we talked about coveting being a sin of the heart. And our, our mouth often reveals what's really in our heart. And so that's what we have to be careful with. Any thoughts on the psalmist here? Any questions? Okay, look at what Paul has to say. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. If we are members of one another, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so, in verse 25, what are we supposed to do? Speak the truth. Speak the truth. We're to speak truth with our neighbor. You notice, what's the motivation in that verse? What are we to... What? We're neighbors. We're neighbors. Yeah, we're, we're members. We are together. Notice Paul highlights the reason that we speak the truth with one another is because of our relationship with one another. The reason we speak the truth about others is because of our relationship with them. And, and also, isn't this one of the problems that with, when we break this commandment, we're, we're kind of putting up a wall between ourselves and somebody else. We're not thinking of them as a person loved by God, one who suffered, Jesus suffered and rose for. And if we do think of people in that way, are we not going to be more likely to defend them, speak well of them, and explain their actions in the kindest way? This is what we're called to do. So, so again, part of this is keep in mind who we are. Our motivation is that, that we're all part of the same family. We are connected to one another. And so then, what are we to do with our anger? Okay, don't let the sun go down. But before that... Well, get rid of it. Don't sin. Correct. It, it, this is sometimes so we, we sometimes forget. Anger in itself is not a sin. God Himself is angry over certain things, and there are things in this world when we look around we should be angry about as as God's people. But the problem that we have is how many times you've been angry and have not sinned. It's real easy to cross that line. And so if we have a righteous anger, how are we to handle it? We, we are to use what God has given us. If it's, it's something that we see in an injustice, 
We are to use our anger to motivate us to, in a proper loving way, make things right as well as we can. And so, because again, and again, this, this so fits the, the sin of the tongue, right? Because when you're angry, what kind of things come out? Often. Hurtful things, right? But if, our, if we are angry without sinning, we many times are going to use the anger to defend the one who is wronged. We're going to use it properly. And, and so, again, and, and this all leads to getting rid of the anger, right? Because, again, what, that's what's implied with the next line, right? Do not let the sun go down by your anger. Let the sun go down on your anger. We are not to remain angry, and why not? It's going to explode. It's going to make things worse, right? But, but how do you not let the sun go down on your anger? You forgive, right? You, and, if, and if it's because you have a problem with somebody else, you work it out with them. And so again, isn't this a positive use of the tongue? To forgive? And what's the other side? Be forgiven, right? So usually if there's an issue between two people, what needs to be done? Talk, discussion, that, and, and, and within the Christian context, there's confession and absolution, is there not? There's an admission on, on both parts normally, because it's really tough for only one person to sin. But, but, but we are called to repent of our sin, confess our sin, and announce forgiveness. Isn't that how our anger is resolved? To not let our sin go down on that anger? Because again, that, that anger just continues to build up, and if we don't take care of it right away, when are we going to take care of it? We just kind of put it off and put it off, and we make it worse and more difficult the longer we wait, right? So the time to do it is, is now. So Paul is very practical with the tongue here, is he not? And, and again, notice in verse 27, um, what's the danger also of, of letting your anger grow? Don't, don't you think the devil just thrives under those six situations? He's just cheering it on. He, he wants you to remain angry so he can continue to put a wall between you and whoever and a, really a wall between you and the world. Because how often does our anger spill out not only toward the person we're angry with, but other people we come in contact. And even can extend to our Lord. That, that's really his, his idea. As long as he, if he can get a wedge between you and somebody, he can build that wedge against others. And eventually, hopefully in his mind, to the Lord. Don't give the devil that opportunity. Put an end to the anger. And so we are to take care of it. And so then we come to verse 28. What's the motivation for honest work? A thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that share with somebody who's in need, right? The whole point of our actions is the, the, the work not only for ourselves, but to provide for our neighbor. Notice how time and time again the motivation is for, for our neighbor and for our friend and for a fellow member in the body of Christ, for a family member. That, again, that's why we keep this, com this commandment. Because what happens to a reputation that is tarnished? How easy is it to restore? Yes, it is. It's hard to fit back into the community with other people. That once a, a reputation is lost, it is very difficult to restore. And, and we have to keep that in mind, that, that we may do damage if 
far beyond anything that we had anticipated doing. And, and once it's gone, we can't take it back. Isn't that one of the tough parts about the sins of the tongue? I mean, how many times in your life have you thought, oh, I just wish I would never have said that? That, that it, you just can't bring it back. Um, and, and so then, um, to practical advice, let no corrupting talk come out from your mouths. What's corrupting talk? What, what's the contrast here? Don't, no corrupting talk, but only what kind of talk? That builds up, right? So doesn't that give us information that the corrupting talk is the things that tear down? So that would be gossiping, but what else would it be? Criticism? Unwarranted criticism? Beating somebody down? Mocking? Ridiculing? Bullying? All those things, wouldn't that be included? Anything that you say that, that would tear somebody down? Now, now understand, that there are times when you need to be corrected, right? We all need someone to come along but, but, but what governs the, the, the true correction? What's the difference? Yes, the true correction comes from a motivation of love with a goal of building up, right? The ridicule and the other things are things that come um, from a motivation of cutting down with no intention of building up. Just to say mean things, to say mean things. Or to make yourself feel better. A, a true correction is one that comes from the heart and for the benefit of, of another. And, and we understand that. And the person receiving it can, can understand that. And, and so again, um, as fits the occasion, that, that we are to speak to one another. Notice that it start out, speak to another, another in truth. But, but also, where else Paul talks about this, he says, speak to one another in love. That, that truth also is not an excuse to, to do harm. That, that whatever we say is done out of love and out of concern. This is what we are called to do. Um, so again, notice how truth and honesty are, are intertwined, both in our words and our action from our heart. We're to avoid all those things that tear down, but focus on those things that build up. Any comments? Yes. Yes, revenge has a major part in this, right? The idea that, well, they hurt me, so I'm going to get even. So we, we almost think we have a get-a-jail-free card with that one, right? If they hurt me, then, then I have every right to hurt them. But again, that, that's what the Lord means when he talks about turning the other cheek. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's the other one. Do unto others. Yes. Mark, did you have a comment? Well, I guess I'm not interested in this. It was last week in your message on uh, 9 and 10. There's a section of the commandments that deals with our relationship with others. And the word neighbor comes up so frequently. And of course, we're reminded of the account of Luke prior to the story of the Samaritan, where the man who believed he had uh, followed all the commandments and then asked Christ, Who is my neighbor? Which leads right into the story of the Samaritan. So it's, it's an interesting and it's really good that you brought that up because that gives us the definition of, of a neighbor, right? The, that we want to define neighbor in a certain way that would justify us not having to follow these commandments, right? In relationship with them. But Jesus telling the parable reminds us our neighbor is the people that God places in our life, especially those in need. Carmela? Uh, I was just going to say something, you know, in verse 
Yes. That's a good thought, because Carmela brought up the idea that it says don't let the sun go down on your anger, but it also says do not be angry and sin. And sometimes our anger is so built up, if that we address it at that moment, it's going to be pretty hard not to sin. And so we have to use some common sense and guided by God's Spirit to say that we're going to get rid of this anger as soon as possible, but as soon as I can do it in a godly and loving way. And, and that, that really is important because sometimes you have to take a moment and think about, well, what's the proper way? You really need a time of prayer, maybe study a scripture to, to, to lead and guide you as to how to handle that. Well, I think that brings up a good point. Whose standard are we speaking by? Our own standard or God's standard? When we say things to our standard, we typically get it wrong. <laughs> Yes, you're exactly right. Because the only way we can be in God's standard is to be in his word to give us that standard. You're exactly right. Any other thoughts? Well, having looked at the scriptures to help us gain a meaning of what the commandment is, now we're going to look at how the commandment played a role in putting Jesus on the cross. So we're looking for two things. We're looking for how was the commandment broken, but how was the commandment kept by our Lord? So Matthew 26. For those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remind, remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to them, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ! Who is it that struck you? So who does Jesus appear before? Caiaphas, right? So as we, often, as we say each year, again, there's two trials going on. The political trial and the religious trial. So this is the religious trial that is going on. And under normal circumstances, what would you expect of the religious trial? Things to be done right? I mean, these are claiming to be people of God who obey the commandments, so you would expect them to be honest and open and, and follow the rules. 
and, and not break the commandments, though that clearly isn't what happens, right? Because when you get to verse 59, what's the problem with this trial? Okay, it's done at night, right? So it's, so it's breaking their own regulations on when this should be done, right? What do we already know in 59? Pardon? They couldn't find anything wrong with them, and yet they already had decided what the, the sentence was, right? That, that we're told by, by Matthew, um, we're seeking a false testimony because they might put him to death. Okay, so they've already started with the end. Isn't it the point of a trial to find out whether someone is guilty and then give the sentence? Aren't they working backward? We already know the sentence. Now we've got to find the charge, and now we've got to find him guilty? It's completely backwards, right? And so already we see the breaking of the Eighth Commandment, right? What, what do we see right away? False testimony. I mean... The, uh, doesn't this just jump out at, the, at you? Here we have the, the Jewish leaders looking for false testimony when the Eighth Commandment says, give no false testimony. They, they are going exactly against God's command. And, and, and they're even bad at it, right? They can't get two to agree. And, and, and this to me is always striking about which regulations they want to seem like they're following and which ones they don't care, Right? Because John brought up the idea that they're doing it at night, so we don't care about that regulation. But we've got to have two witnesses that agree, so we've got to follow that regulation. Why do they got to keep that one when they're breaking all the rest? I'm not really sure, but isn't the sinful mind a, a, a really strange thing? That we can justify certain things, but not other things? And so that's what they're trying to do. So, so we have blatant lies, but then finally, what witness do they bring forward to get two to say the same thing? Okay, did Jesus say that? No. He's about else. Okay, did Jesus make the statement, I will tear down this temple and build it back up? No, he said he was able to. <laughs> okay, he said he was able to. So, but again, that sounds right, but, but was it in this context? What was he referring to? Himself. Himself, right? So, so again, isn't this part of breaking the commandment, that uh, taking what someone says twisting a little bit, but really putting it in a false context. In a context to purposely to make them look bad. And, and, and again, so, so you might take someone who says something and take a direct quote, but boy, if you take that direct quote and you put it in the wrong context, can't you make some people look really, really bad? And, 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 oh, but it's honest he said that. Well, no, not really. And, and that's also breaking this commandment is when we say something in a certain way to make people think something even though we know that it's not really what went on, right? That's, what, that's kind of how we try to get out of things. We say something in a certain way and let someone think something different than really was meant. That, that, that also is a breaking of, of this commandment. And, 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 and so it's, it's a lie to give the wrong impression just as much as it is to say the wrong thing. And so... But he's referring to his own body when he made the statement that was close to this. And so, what's the question they finally asked Jesus? Pardon? Yes, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? 
Um, what, what's interesting about asking that question of Jesus? What has Jesus been claiming all along? <laughs> that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God? I, I mean, Peter made that confession. When, every time he said, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the vine, every time he made one of those statements, he's claiming to be God, he's claiming to be the Messiah, he has done it over and over and over again. And so now they want him to get it, uh, I guess, right, written down. So, so he, he, they ask him yet again. And what's Jesus' response? Said so. Yes, you have said so. And how, what does he follow up that with? Yes. He, he basically, what's he doing here? He's doubling down, isn't he? You have said so. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. And, and let me tell you what that means. That from I tell you, you will see me when the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of power coming on clouds of heaven. What kind of statement is that? Okay, righteous one, what did you say? One of victory, right? Authority. authority. And with authority, isn't there a little bit of a threat behind this? The, the idea that, yes, I am, and the next time you see me, look out. <laughs> isn't he trying to, to bring before them a realization of what they are doing? Because he, he could have just simply said yes, but, but he wants them to understand exactly what that means for them. And to me, this is the perfect example of keeping the commandment to the fullest, right? He is making clear exactly what he means when he says that he is the, is the Messiah. That he is the one who has come, who is promised by God, and also the Messiah is the one who is going to return in judgment. He's quoting Daniel here. That passage in Daniel that speaks about the Messiah coming back, that's me. Realize that what you have before you is the one promised by God to bring salvation to the world, who is going to day, one day going to bring judgment to this world. So think hard about what you're about to do. Is it not? And I firmly believe that Jesus always acts in love to the people he's speaking to. He's calling the chief priests and everybody there to repentance, to recognize that they're, that, that they're, not, they're not fooling around with something that's minor. What they are doing is has eternal consequences. And that's why I think he doesn't just say, yes, I'm the bread of life, or yes, I was, I'm the son of David. He, he could have chosen any of the Old Testament references to the Messiah, but he had to choose this one for a specific reason. And I think the reason was to bring the fullness of the law to bear with the hopes that they would repent. So he tore his garment in repentance? No, not quite, right? Uh, the chief priest tears his um, garments and what does he charge Jesus with? The irony is that, because blasphemy is a sin against God, right? It's a sin against God to claim to be the Messiah when you are not. The only one who could make the statement that he just made is Jesus of Nazareth. He's actually speaking the truth. It's not blasphemous. And yet, in their minds, it is. And so they send him off to be um, to, for, for death. And what do they do with Jesus next in verses 67 and 68? Spit on him, slap him, mock him, ridicule him. And this also breaking the Eighth Commandment. 
uh, the idea of bullying, right, of, of um, beating up, of tearing down. And, and so we see this contrast. So when we look at this, how is the Eighth Commandment broken in bringing Jesus to the cross? What examples do we have? False witness, right? Lying. Um, gossiping, putting things in the wrong context. Twisting and turning them. Mocking, ridiculing, also including. But how did you just keep this commandment? He told the truth, right? He, he spoke the word, and he spoke the word that needed to be heard, right? And I think also from love. I think also him, sometimes we keep this commandment by silence. You know what your mom said, uh, if you don't have anything nice to say about someone, don't say anything at all. And in, in, in the middle of this, Jesus was silent. I think that's also keeping this commandment, not speaking when others would have spoken, um, and, and, uh, and lashing out, and in other ways, Jesus remained silent until the proper time, and he spoke, and he spoke the truth, and he spoke the truth in fullness. Now, now one of the real important parts of understanding this study is that when we look at what Jesus did in keeping the commandment, we are reminded that he did what we cannot do. Who amongst us can keep this commandment rightly and properly? None of us can. But the good news for us as we look at Jesus going to the cross is that he did what we could not do. He did it in our place. He kept this commandment perfectly for us so that we would be forgiven. And that's the beauty that we have in Jesus going to the cross. Your sins against this commandment, your gossiping, your lying, whatever you want to put in there, it's forgiven. Christ paid the price for it. And you know he paid the price because he kept it perfectly for you. And he gave up his life for you. You are forgiven. And so when that guilt comes, oh, why did I say that? Or whatever that burden might be, go back to the cross and be reminded that, that you don't have to bear that shame or that guilt anymore. It's been taken care of. You have been forgiven. And the beauty is that now God speaks the truth to you. He speaks the truth that you can count on, that you are loved, that you are forgiven, and that you have the promise of eternal life.